it's difficult to understand what exactly was going through the mind of Christ when he faced the cross. It almost seems to be conflicting scriptures where Isaiah the prophet calls him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And on the other hand, we have Hebrews that says, Jesus endured the cross because of the joy set before him, almost as though he could hardly wait to get there. So on the cross, we see both the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Some aspects of this day didn't seem to bother Christ very much, but others caused him a lot of grief. For example, it didn't seem to trouble Christ about the actual cross, the physical cross, the pain he was going to endure. He'd seen it many times. He'd seen sacrifices in the temple over and over. Death was a part of life. Mortality rate was high. People didn't live very long in his time. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He didn't seem to be troubled by Satan either, his old adversary that he had been battling for the last three years. But he said in John 14, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no power over me. Jesus didn't actually seem to bother so much spending three days in darkness and in death. Matthew 12, 40, it says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Some of these things he had predicted himself. It wasn't a surprise to him. He knew actually step by step by step what he was about to endure on the cross. But there were some things throughout his ministry that did trouble him. Several times he was grieved in his spirit, Matthew 14, 14 says that he was moved with compassion towards the crowds that he was teaching. He was, he was wandering through the village one time, and he saw a woman whose only son had died, and he says he was moved with compassion. He had to stop, and he had to help give her son back to her, raised him from the dead. He was troubled at the grief of his friends, Mary and Martha, when they saw their brother Lazarus die. In John eleven thirty three. 33, it says, not only was he deeply troubled, but he, he cried. <laughs> he was grieving over the loss of his friend and the trouble that his friends were having. He was also going to be troubled by being betrayed and abandoned by his disciples. In John chapter 13, after Jesus spoke to his disciples, it says he was deeply troubled and told his disciples, I tell you for certain, some, someone here is going to betray me. I don't know what he was going through. The humanity of him was coming out. The divinity of him was kind of settled, but the humanity was what was coming out at this time. He was troubled just before his arrest as he prayed, and the blood of, uh, 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 tears of blood were dripping in the Garden of Gethsemane from him. This says he took Peter and John and Matthew 14 and James along with him, began to feel distressed and troubled. He even said, God, maybe, maybe this cup can pass from me. Is there no other way? other than this cross. He was also, I believe, troubled about becoming sin. It would be a totally new experience for him. He never dealt with sin before, and then he was going to become sin, yours and mine. It said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made the one who did not know any sin to be sin for us, 
so that God's righteousness would be pronounced, uh, produced in us. He says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. There's another aspect that we here in North America don't really take into account that, that really kind of troubles me. In the Middle East and in Asia particularly, there's, there's something that families try to avoid at all cost. They will endure almost anything if they don't have to endure shame. Anthropologists say that there's kinds of uh, generalized characteristics of cultures. There's usually three different kinds of cultures. You can be shame-based or, or guilt-based or fear-based. So in other words, if you've got a dictator, you've got the military running your country, uh, generally you're going to be fear-based society. You do whatever they say or else you'll be shot or else you'll be thrown in jail. Fear is a great motivator. Uh, lots of conquerors have ruled by fear. The Roman army that was where uh, Jesus was ruled by fear. They, that's what the crosses were about. You, know, you want to avoid the cross. But there's guilt-based societies like ours. We like to make people feel guilty for what they did. We like to, to um, you know, hope that they have a conscience. When they do something, they feel bad. Uh, and so our society is more like when you, do you realize what you have done? Like, don't you feel bad about that? You know, go, go say you're sorry. You know, feel bad about it. So we, we have a guilt-based society in general. But where Jesus grew up, it was a shame-based society. That means that it's not so much, you, you, you don't do things out of fear or out of, avoid them out of guilt, but you don't want to bring shame on your family. In fact, that's why there's honor killings, because someone has brought shame on the family. In fact, the life of that person isn't as valuable as not having shame on the family. It shows how much shame rules society. So in a guilt culture, Ruth Benedict, an anthropologist, she says, you know you're good or bad by what your conscience feels. But in a shame culture, you know you're good or bad by what your community says about you, by whether it honors or excludes you. In a guilt culture, people sometimes feel they've done bad things. In a shame culture, social exclusion makes you feel you're a bad person. So shame-based cultures use this as a powerful tool to keep people in line. Kim and I were overseas, uh, and we were at a, a restaurant somewhere or a coffee shop, and there was these signs on the table that said, a nice person would clear the table after they're done. <laughs> a well-disciplined person would not study too long at this table and prevent others from coming in. But there's about four or five signs on this table shaming anybody who didn't clear their table or stayed too long or made a mess. Just the sign itself was enough. Today, though, we have the omnipresence of social media, and it's created a new kind of shame culture. The world of Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, constant display and observations. People are watching you all the time, and you don't want to be socially shamed by doing something bad. You can be excluded by the Twitterverse by Facebook friends. You can be defriended, unfriended, and deleted because you said something they didn't like. 
You could be excluded, you know, fear of missing out. It's, I don't want to be left out, uh, be shamed that way. The desire to be embraced and praised by the community is intense. People dread being exiled and condemned. So the internet has created like a small town mentality. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody sees what you did. In the Middle Ages, you were, if you were a bad person, you did something wrong, they put you in the town square in the stocks. And there people could throw tomatoes at you. And oftentimes they would speak out loudly your, your crimes, the sins that you've committed. But the same thing is now ha- happening on the internet. Internet shaming. You can never leave the internet. It's always out there. Whatever you did or said, it's going to be there forever. And you're so embarrassed and shamed, you just have to leave social media. So shame pertains to breaking the code or violating social norms, whether it's something you've done or something that's been done to you. I've seen often people that have committed atrocious crimes when they were on drugs or in a drunken stupor. They, they stand before the judge, they hang their head, and they say, I am so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed of what I've done. I can't believe it. I don't even have any memories of it. But they say I did it. Not just individuals that can feel shame. Whole countries can feel shame. There's a national shame, like what Germany and Japan faced after World War II for the crimes perpetrated upon the world. Other national leaders ask forgiveness for how they've treated the indigenous people in their country. Even the prophet Daniel in the book of Daniel chapter 9 says, Oh, Lord, shame of face belong to us, to our kings and our rulers and to our fathers because of what we, how we have sinned against you. It's really interesting when you start looking at the shame-based culture that Jesus grew up in. It it pops up uh, throughout the scriptures. Even David prays in Psalm 71, Oh, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Psalm 44, My shame is always before me, and the shame of my face has covered me. David actually wishes, uh, as if this is a penalty, he wishes shame upon his enemies. He says, let them be ashamed and humbled together, those who seek after my soul to destroy. Let them be driven backward and put to shame, those who wish evil on me. And Solomon writes in Proverbs 19, he who assaults his father and chases away his mother is a son who causes shame and brings reproach. So one of God's own punishments upon the lying prophets. In Jeremiah 23, he says, and I will bring an everlasting reproach on you and a never-ending shame which shall not be forgotten. And then to the city of Nineveh in uh, Nahum 3.5, the Lord Almighty says, I will punish you, Nineveh. I will strip you naked and let the nations see you, see you in all your shame. And I will treat you with contempt and cover you with filth. And people will stare at you in horror. Sounds a bit harsh, and why am I talking about this? Because that's a picture of Christ on the cross. It's a picture of the Roman army trying to do everything possible to shame Jesus. The cross was designed to shame the victim, to expose them and humiliate them. It was meant to break the victim down emotionally and psychologically, physically. The cross took away the person's dignity. And when, then as a bonus, they added further ridicule by mocking and slander and spitting to further demean and degrade the person. Isaiah 50 verse 6, it says, I gave my back to the strikers, my cheeks to the pluckers. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So imagine the face of God being spat upon and slapped. Imagine 
God having his clothes torn from his body. Imagine God being mocked and ridiculed and laughed at and taunted. God was treated with demeaning disrespect and contempt, and he actually pulled hair from his beard. What more can you do to a person to try and put shame on them? Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low self-esteem, low esteem. And surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted. Then he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So shame can be like a cage that surrounds you, that prevents us from feeling joy or freedom or worthiness. Some of us still live with shame, perhaps due to guilt or insecurities or feelings of inadequacies. Some of us are ashamed because we grew up poor, because we are not educated. I remember being a bit shocked when I went down south to do some conferences, and this woman says, oh, I'm just white trash. Grew up in a trailer park, all those things. I'm like, what? You're like 60 years old, and you still call yourself white trash because of where she grew up. Some are ashamed because they were abused or molested or worse and still question their worth or think that somehow they're still broken. Some are ashamed because of an addiction we cannot overcome. Some are ashamed of our skin color, our body type, or physical blemish. We try everything we can to not look like us. Some are ashamed because of an emotional or mental illness that plagues us. Just can't seem to get over it, or through it, or past it. Some are ashamed because of an abortion, past sexual promiscuity, having an affair, committing adultery. They, they carry the shame with them the rest of their life. Even after we repent or make reconciliation or plead for forgiveness, we can still feel that stabbing pain of shame. Not with Jesus. It was not shame that held him on the cross. It was not shame that made him stay silent during his accusations levied against him. It wasn't shame that led him to offer forgiveness to the thief on the cross beside him. It wasn't shame was love. Shame did not humble him or break him or paralyze him or defeat him. The cross was the pathway to the tomb, and the tomb was the gateway to the resurrection. Listen to this verse, Hebrews 12, to, to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you hear that? Jesus despised shame. He would not be pressured by his family who felt the shame because he was embarrassing them being on a cross. He wasn't shamed by society who wanted him to conform to their uh, distorted religious practices or by the rulers who tried to expose him as a fraud. He wasn't ashamed by the Romans who suppressed any dissent 
He actually became the stumbling block over which all of his accusers would trip and crash to the ground in embarrassment. The shame that everyone tried to cover him with would not stick, it would not stain, it would not contaminate him. He rose above his accusers, set new standards, made new commandments, and became the mighty judge over everyone else. In Colossians 2 it says, having erased the charges that were brought against us along with their obligations that were hostile to us, he took those charges away when he nailed them to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. The cross was his triumph, not his embarrassment, not his shame. He wasn't humiliated on the cross. He was being victorious. He was saying, give me more. I can take it. Is that all you got? He wasn't embarrassed and shamed. He was victorious. He was powerful, never more powerful than when he looked them in the eye and said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Who do you think is going to grovel in abject shame when they stand before the risen Lord? Yeah, everyone who nailed him on there, who's plucked the hairs out of his head, who slapped him and spit on him, and now they're going to stand before him, the risen Lord, and going, okay, what was that you are going to say again? Romans 9, 33 says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling block and a rock of offense, and everyone believing on him shall not be put to shame. Do you believe in Jesus? This verse says that you will no longer be put to shame. He took the shame that was ours and nailed it to the cross, and he made a mockery of shame. The world wants to throw at us everything that's fraudulent. It's their own hypocrisy, their own shame, their own embarrassment, their own. It doesn't belong to us we can despise the shame that they try to make us feel, the guilt that they try and throw on us, the, all the contamination that they feel to try and put on us. We can say, no, it's not ours. It doesn't belong to us. That's, that's, that's yours. We once walked in shame, but now we walk in righteousness. We walk with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 says, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the revelation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We used to walk in shame. Now we walk in righteousness because of what Christ did for us. It's time for many people to realize that Christ has broken the lock and opened the door for us, and we can step out of that shame cage and live in freedom and power. It says he came to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to take our shame and replace it with his glory. In Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're carrying shame with you, let it go. That's not who you are anymore. It's not what happened to you that defines who you are today. It's what Christ did for you that defines who you are no condemnation, no belittling, no derision, no superiority, no embarrassment. We are clothed with Christ. We put on Christ, as Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, thrown down at his feet. He says, and I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. We are born again. We are seen as righteous. We are children of God. We are free in Christ. We will despise the shame that the world wants to heap on us because of the cross. And we can lift up our heads and look people in the eye knowing we are cleansed and renewed and dearly loved. 2 Corinthians 3 says, 
Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Have you ever been publicly humiliated? Have you ever been ashamed because of something that you've been through or because of something someone said? Have you felt that discomfort and pain and even torture of embarrassment and humiliation? If you've experienced these feelings, take comfort in the fact that Jesus felt them too for us. He took those emotions upon himself as a part of his sacrificial work on the cross so that you and I can be free. We don't have to be encumbered, encumbered with feelings of shame for the rest of our lives. He literally took our shame so we could be free from it. He dealt with the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the shame of sin. And so when, we, when he became a sin for us, our sins were placed on him. And they were taken to the cross. They were done away with. Casting them as far as the east is from the west. And what remains is the glory of God, the power of God, the presence of God in us. That's what Christ did on the cross. Isaiah 45, 17, it says, Israel will be saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation, and you won't be put to shame or disgrace ever again. Let's pray. Father, so much was happening on that day, you were nailed to the cross. So many things in the spiritual world, the physical world that we don't even understand. The tremendous amount of power that was displayed, the death, the sin, the shame, the brokenness, everything was nailed to the cross with Jesus, our Lord. And on Sunday, when he rose from the dead, he showed how much power he had over all of those things that tried to keep him down, that tried to suppress him, tried to embarrass him, to shame him. He won. He has the victory. And he puts it in each one of us. Thank you for this day, what happened on a Good Friday, so we could have a life everlasting if we but put our faith in Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.